0: Well, last week we were talking some about what a story is and how a story in many ways is a lot like maps. Stories help us to see where we are. Stories also help us to see where we're going. And we're in a series right now called One Big Story. And we're looking at a true story of a living, loving, holy, creative God who creates a people for relationship. Imperfect people, sinful people, rebellious people like us, but a people trying to live a life of faith and a people called to live a life of faith in obedience uh, to God and in relationship with God. And so in this series, what we're wanting to do again is is to look at all of Scripture, at all of the Bible in eight broad chapters or eight broad strokes and themes that we can pull out of Scripture. And you can look at a number of different ways to do that, but we're going to look at eight different segments uh, throughout this series to help us understand this big story. And it also helps us to understand our place in this story because we really only truly understand our story and our lives once we understand the context of God's stories and how ours fits into what God has designed and what God is is doing. And so, so far we've been in, in the story of creation, the chapter of creation, looking at Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Then last week we looked at the story of brokenness and the implications of sin, uh, Genesis 3 to 11, uh, eight chapters. Uh, Today we're going to look at the chapter of promise and we're going to look at chapters, Genesis chapter 12 all the way to 50. I think that's 38 chapters, so we're going to make some uh, time here and I'd encourage you to turn turn to your Bibles in Genesis chapter 12 and uh, we're going to start there and... And look at this broad sweep of this story as told in Genesis. This week the story points to the promise. And that's the title and the theme. It's a promise of God that is given to Abraham and to this new people. People called Israel. And we're going to look at the implications of that and how it relates to us today. It's a promise that, that literally changed the course of history. As God set in motion this act of restoration of restoring his people, his creation back to himself. And, and really the chapters that we're going to, the verses we're going to start with are really the pivotal place of this restoration story in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 3. And we're going to look a little bit further even to 1 to 7. So I'm going to start in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 7, and then we're going to just flip over to Genesis 15 and look at a few verses there as well to begin. So it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed, as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, and all of his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran, and he headed for the land of Canaan. When they arrived at Canaan, Abram said, uh, traveled through the land as far as Shechem and there he set up camp beside the oak of Moreh at that time the area was inhabited by Canaanites and then the lord appeared to abram and said i will give you this land i will give this land to your descendants and abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the lord who had appeared to him if you turn over or flip through on your electronic device you can go to genesis chapter 15 uh, chapter 15 and A little bit of time has passed, and now God comes, or Abraham actually goes to God, and and there's this interaction between God and Abraham again, and it continues in this promise, says it a little bit differently, and adds to it in some ways. And so it says in verse 15, uh, verses 1 to 6, Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all of my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, He said, Look up, look into the sky, count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. We know that a little bit later on, his name is changed to Abraham. And so this man, Abraham, is one who is given an incredible promise. What an amazing promise of truth. I mean, this was good news for him. I was thinking as I read this story, this was probably not good news for Eliezer of Damascus. Right? I mean, he's sitting there going, this guy has no, you know, descendants, no kids, and cultural tradition has it that then I, as the leader of the household, then get all this. So he wouldn't have liked this promise. But Abraham and Sarah, I mean, what an amazing promise, because Abraham was a wealthy man, he had all kinds of livestock and so on. God had blessed him in many ways. And now God is saying, I'm going to bless you even more. It's a promise of land, it's a promise of many descendants. But what else is part of this promise? What else is captured in it? Walter Brueggemann has stated that Genesis chapter 12 is actually, uh, you can think of it as a second creation account. It's like a, a, another creation account that God is doing. He's creating a new people. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating all the cosmos and everything, into it, and everything in it, being brought into being by the power of his spoken word. And now in Genesis 12, and also we see in Genesis chapter 15, we see how, how God calls a whole new people into being. Calls them in for a special purpose. But again, he does it by the power of his word and a promise. A promise that he gives to Abraham and gives to Sarah. He says, I'm going to make a new people. And you are going to have descendants beyond what you could possibly count. We know that they are old in age and they are in fact barren, can't have children. And so this promise seems ludicrous. This promise doesn't make any sense in a human way, but yet it is a promise that God gives him to bring a new people into being. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, the narrative that we looked at in the last couple of weeks moves quickly in many ways because it covers a large expanse of time. We don't know exactly how much time it covers, but there's all of this creation, fall, Cain and Abel, no one in the flood, the Tower of Babel. And now the narrative slows down and it focuses on this one man, Abraham. Because after the people fell into sin and brokenness that we looked at last week, we now see God who initiates a solution to this sin and he begins a work of restoration and reclamation. And it's not so much damage control as some people and some authors may uh, comment on it, as some see it, but it's a whole new beginning for a very specific purpose. So part of this promise is blessing. And this word blessing, I think, is just a, a great word. We sometimes use it in greetings, or we sometimes kind of end our salutations or emails, or well, maybe you don't end your text that way, but, but we say blessing to people. And it's a good word. It's a biblical word. You want to convey God's blessing to people as a way of, of just encouraging them in that way. But we think, well, what does the word exactly mean? Well, one way to think about it is actually if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Because you see that Adam and Eve were actually created in a blessed condition. It says that God blesses them. So what was the condition that they were in at that point in time? Well, they were in right relationship with God. They were in right relationship with each other. They were in right relationship with creation. All of their physical needs were being met. There was blessing. There was peace. It's almost like another word that, that is used, a good biblical word called shalom. There was this peace of God that was all-encompassing. It, it involved more than just one aspect. It was a physical, spiritual, emotional, and psychological aspect. All those needs were being met, and there was peace. It's a good word. Blessing. And that's what, That is what is being conveyed here to Abraham, is that God is saying, I am going to bless you. But for what purpose? Just so that he could be blessed and his family could be blessed and even the people that would come after him would be blessed? No, this blessing came with a bigger purpose. He says you'll be blessed in order to be a blessing to others. In fact, he says all the nations and families of the earth will be blessed through you. That's quite a promise. But it's also a really significant mandate. And it points to Abraham and to us what we are to think about when we receive God's blessing in whatever way. Is that he was being blessed in order to bless others. That's why they were being set apart. And as you look at the course of history of Israel, and even as we go into the next week and the weeks to follow, and you look at the Old Testament and you see the course of the people of Israel, how did they handle this blessing? They continued to forget that their blessing was in order to bless other people. They wanted to keep it for themselves. They wanted to say, you know what, this is good in some ways. And don't we often have the same tendencies? I think we do. I think if we're honest, we often have the very similar tendencies where we feel that we have been blessed by God in one way or another and we we just sort of want to keep it and hold on to it for ourselves. And yet God has said very clearly here to Abraham and conveys this to us as well too, that we are blessed in order to bless others. You know, even today as we talk about after the service about a north site, as we think about multi-site, as we think about green space, as we think about even the potential of sort of giving and releasing some really good people to another work. Our tendency, our human nature is to sort of close in and say, no, 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 we want to keep things good and keep things here for ourselves. But yet God continues to call us to open the hands and to bless others. What does it take to be a blessing to the nations? That's what Abraham was called to. That's what, as we will see a little bit later on, that we are also called to as the church as well. How are we to bring and to be a blessing of God to the nations? And so you see that this responsibility was there to extend to others for Abraham, the people of Israel, and all who come after. Philip Yancey says it this way. He says that we are to be dispensers of this grace and this blessing. We are to be conduits. We're not to be a cistern that sort of gathers water and holds water in and kind of contains it in one way, but we are to be an aqueduct. We are to be a vehicle that actually the water flows through, comes in and goes out. And you know that if you have a lake that is healthy, it has an entry point and it has an exit point, and it is healthy because the water is moving and it is flowing, even though you might not necessarily see it. And when there's no water going in and no water going out, we call that a slough. And it gets stagnant and stinky. And we need an inflow and an outflow. And that's what we are called to do with the grace of God and the blessing of God is to extend that to others in all kinds of ways. Let's return to the story. Let's go back to the narrative in, in chapters 12 and following and return to the story of Abraham, Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and how God's promises are fulfilled here in this story that we see recorded in Scripture. Even though Abraham and Sarah were barren, And as I said, of old age, and it seemed ridiculous to think that God could actually do this work when there were so many obstacles. And yet I find it interesting how so often in Scripture, God uses actually barren women over and over again to do his purposes. It's almost like he likes the obstacles to just show, yeah, we can still do it. And yet so often when we face obstacles, we kind of go, well, this must not be the will of God because this is hard. And then we see in Scripture how often it is very hard. And yet God is calling them to keep moving forward and to keep walking in faith. Abraham and Sarah, in fact, they try to help God out because they think, too, this is crazy that we might actually have children at this old age. So they think, well, let's just help God out a little bit. And so if you know the story at all, you remember that the maidservant Hagar was put in a commissioning role to get pregnant with Abraham and to have a son. And she did. She gave birth to Ishmael. I find it interesting as you read that story, and especially in, in Genesis 16 and in Genesis 21 and in other chapters that come back to the story of Hagar and Ishmael, I, I find it so interesting and so encouraging how the evidences of grace are in that story as well. We talked about that last week, that even in, even in the brokenness, even when there's this brokenness and sin in the story, that there's evidences of grace all over the place. And we see that in Hagar and, and Ishmael as well in this story. Because if you know the story, if you grow up in the church, you understand this story. If you didn't grow up in the church, maybe it's new to you. Uh, pay attention to some of the details of this story, because Hagar, as the maidservant, is kind of outside of God's promise here, and yet God's grace is extended to her in a very intimate, intimate ways. As you read, especially in, in Genesis chapter sixteen, she's treated very poorly by Sarah, and she eventually runs away. And what does God do? He sends an angel. And in Genesis 16, verses 10 to 11, this angel comes to Hagar and says, I will give you more descendants than you can count. Interesting. the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. And Hagar is desperate, alone, feeling lost, outside of the blessing and the promise of God probably abandoned by God. And here is the grace and the blessing that God gives her. If you read in verse 13 of that chapter, it says, Thereafter, Hagar used the name, another name, to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her, and she said, You are the God who sees me. She also said, Have I truly seen the one who sees me? And I've always loved this story of this woman who felt unseen by everybody around her unseen in terms of the promise of God, and yet she declares this God, this living God, is the one who sees her. He came and he met her, and he extended grace and blessing to her. But then if you look at the verse in between in verse 12, we also see that conflict is also part of this story, and it sets this conflict in motion, even though it's in the midst of promise and blessing. Because it says, This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. And yes, he will live in open hostility to all of his relatives. So there's blessing, but there's conflict. It's not easy. Later, as you read the story, you will recognize that Sarah did have a son, and she called him Isaac. And Isaac was this promised child that was there for Abraham and Sarah. And if you know that story, where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, he was tested by God, testing his faith. And so Isaac is the lion through, whose God, through whom God's promises continue. But there is this tension of Ishmael and Isaac that is there right here in this text and so often in this story. And so often it's true that even in the context of blessing and God's promise, there is conflict and pain and confusion and things that we don't fully understand. In October 2012, or 2014 actually, Lisa and I had the opportunity to be in Istanbul. And it was quite an amazing experience to spend some days in that city. And one of the places that we went to, that you have to go to if you go to Istanbul, is to go to the Blue Mosque, and I have a picture of it. It's not great, this is just uh, internet stock and not great pixels, but it was, uh, it's a, a mosque that is beautiful and architecturally stunning and so on, built by Sultan Ahmet in 1609 the construction began about 400 years old but outside of the blue mosque there's this courtyard and I I took a picture of a poster which is the next slide I took a picture of a poster and I don't expect you to read that I just want you to get a bit of a picture and understanding of it this is actually written in English and so it's in the courtyard of the blue mosque um, this Muslim place of worship and in there they have this family tree And it's kind of all of the generations that come down from, right from Adam and Eve, all the way down, because Abraham is considered the father of the Muslim community as well. And so you have the descendants there. And I want to just zoom in on the next slide, and and you can see I've got the blue arrows there. It shows how Abraham is there at the top in the red, and then it shows Ishmael on the one side and Isaac on the other side. And then it sort of drills down and it shows all of the family trees and all the history and all this kind of thing. Right outside the blue mosque, it sits it's there and explains this history and how, how Ishmael, born of Hagar, and the descendants go down there and it goes down until it gets to the prophet of Muhammad. And on the other side it shows Isaac and it goes all the way down and even until it shows Jesus in there. But it shows Jesus is just simply a good man and a prophet. But it's interesting how you see this history going all the way back to Genesis chapter 16 coming through on the wall of this blue mosque in Istanbul. What's also interesting is that that tension, that conflict that is there between these two lines, these two people groups is so evident even today as you stand in that city. Because when you look behind you when you're standing at the Blue Mosque you see another picture on the next slide. This is the Haggai Sophia. And uh, this was a picture that I took with our group and you can see Randy Friesen there. You see the back of the head of Willie Reimer on the left and and Dave uh, Berg is on the right there, some of you know. And so there was the group of us that were there, and this is the Haggai Sophia. This is uh, a church that is considered by many, it was the greatest church in all of Christendom, built in 537 AD, a thousand years before the Blue Mosque. A thousand years. And this church was sort of the seat of the Christian world. And it was the most significant Christian church until the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, a thousand, year later, a thousand years later. Now this Hagia Sophia is a museum. And you can go in there and you can see the stunning beauty of the architecture. But it's literally across the courtyard from each other. Because when you stand there and you turn around and you take the picture, this is the other picture I took of the Blue Mosque right behind you. And right in the main square in Istanbul is these two buildings that show this tension that I see of Isaac and Ishmael just standing there right in front of you. And you just get a sense of some of this history of what God was doing and God's incredible story. And you go, what's going on there? And I I can't explain all that history and I won't try to. But for me, it just points and it depicts this tension and this truth that we see in Genesis chapter 16, this ongoing hostility. Because see, Abraham is considered the father of three of our major world religions that we have in the world today, the Jewish faith, the Muslim faith, and the Christian faith. Now, the difference is is that the Jewish people are still waiting for the Messiah, still looking for that Messiah and for Jesus. The Muslim people see Jesus only as a good man or a prophet. And here's the uniqueness of the Christian faith, is that it provides a solution to our sin and our brokenness because of the promise of God. And here's our bottom line for today, the thing that I want you to understand today that we see in this text. The bottom line is this, is that we have been blessed by God in order to bless others. With the good news of Jesus Christ as he is the fulfillment of God's promise. Because you see, God's blessing, God's promise is not found in fulfillment in Abraham. It's not even found in fulfillment in the people of Israel. It's found in fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's what it's pointing to. But we're getting ahead again. Let's return to our narrative. Let's return to the story of Jacob and Joseph. And again, because of time, we can't go into this a lot at all. And some of you would know this story well, others of you, it's a new story, but it's how the promise has continued to be carried out. You have Father Abraham, who gives birth to son Isaac, who gives birth to son Jacob. Jacob also has 12 sons, and the favorite one is Joseph, if you remember. Joseph, the one who is the dreamer, the one who has dreams, and also the one who is able to interpret dreams. God has given him a unique gift in that way, but his brothers didn't like him quick history. There was a lot of conflict in his family with the 12 brothers, because not only because he was the favorite and he had this beautiful coat that his father made for him just to make him stand out even more, but because he had a dream that actually his whole family would bow down and worship him. And he had the gall to tell them that dream. And they didn't like that. And so one day when his father sends him out to go see his brothers, they have a plan and they decide that they're going to pretend to kill him. And Dip his coat in the blood of an animal, take it back to his father and say that he's been killed, but they actually sell him to who? to Ishmaelite traders, relatives of the clan of Ishmael, who then take him to Egypt, and he goes into slavery in Potiphar's household in Egypt. So Joseph ends up in Egypt, and he's in Potiphar's household, and very soon, because he's a very good administrator and a good leader and is very trustworthy. And has integrity, he is given responsibility in the household in all kinds of ways. He gains favor. But he's also a good-looking young man. And if you know the story, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. But he's a man of integrity and he runs. But he gets framed, even though he's innocent, and he's thrown into prison. In prison, he works hard again. He finds favor with those who are in the prison, the wardens and so on, and the others that are there. He interprets the dreams of a cupbearer and a baker and the dream is that one of them gets out and the other one gets impaled on a pole and dies. Not a great dream. Those dreams both come true. And then when the cupbearer gets out, he's forgotten to tell the pharaoh about this man who interprets dreams. So Joseph sits in prison for another two years until the pharaoh has a dream. And then the cupbearer remembers, you oh, there was this guy in prison who could interpret dreams. And Joseph is brought before Pharaoh and asked to interpret this dream. And he says, what your dream means is that there's going to be seven years of prosperity and then there's going to be seven years of famine. So Pharaoh says, well, I'm going to put you in charge of things to get our house in order in order to have crops and food in order to prepare for that famine. And so Joseph again finds favor in Pharaoh's household and becomes second in command in all of Egypt. Famine hits Joseph's family, and eventually the brothers, they, they come to Egypt. They don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes them. They cower in fear when suddenly it is discovered that Joseph is who he is, and they are afraid that now he is going to get the, their, his retribution against these brothers, but Joseph has been blessed, and so he recognizes that he too needs to bless them, even though they tried to kill him. And then we see in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 that well-known text if you are familiar with the story where Joseph extends this grace and this blessing to his brother and he and he says this you intended to harm me but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. So these brothers they stay in Egypt. They settle down, they have families, they multiply in great numbers. And they grow in size and magnitude like crazy. They fulfill, in many ways, the promise of God because they become as numerous as the stars in the sky. So much so that if you go to the first verses of Exodus, the very next book at the end of Genesis, what starts the Exodus story, we wonder, well, how did the people of Israel get in Egypt in slavery? Well, this is how it happened because they grew so much in number that they threatened the Egyptian pharaoh and the rulers of that time who didn't know joseph and all those because this was many generations later and they put them into slavery so now interesting way of how god is going to fulfill his promise but this is what god does he weaves this amazing story together that doesn't always make sense in our world that actually is filled with what we would see as unmet promises and ways that don't make sense that seem kind of wrong and not in our timing not in joseph's timing I mean, when Joseph was in prison, was he thinking, this is God's plan, this is perfect. When he was in the pit, was he thinking the same thing? I doubt it. And same with us, where we often feel the same way. I mean, do you, do you sometimes feel that the promises of God, that maybe God has made some promises to you that were unfulfilled? That were incomplete? Maybe not as you planned, maybe harder than you thought? But see, God is a God who keeps his promises. Not always linear, not always kind of in the nice, neat package, not always in the way and in the timing and the, the way and the sense that we would like, but God is a God who keeps his promises. Yes, there are side trails. Yes, there are meanderings. Yes, there is sin and pain and disillusionment and disappointment. But in all this as well, we see God's grace. Because God is still at work. And what does he call us to? He calls us to faith. That's why in Hebrews 11 it says faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. That's why also in that chapter in Hebrews 11 there is actually two accounts of Abraham in that chapter because of a man of faith who walked in faith, not perfectly, but walked in faith even in the midst of his doubt, disillusionment, and disappointment. And here's the thing that I want to encourage each one of us with today is that God is fulfilling his promise and his purposes even in your life, because you are part of this story. You are part of this grand story in ways that you don't fully see right now. And I find it so encouraging and amazing how God weaves together our choices and our doubts and our efforts and even our sin into his one big story for his bigger purposes because these are part of God's promise for us. We see it in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see it in Joseph. And it's also part of your story, being fulfilled in your life in ways that you don't often see. So again, God's promise to Abraham isn't fulfilled in the people of Israel. It's not even fulfilled in the church itself. But it is fulfilled in the hope that we as believers carry, which is in the resurrected Christ. It's fulfilled in Jesus. This is the message of the church. And if we have time today, I would take you into Romans chapter 11 and on your own you might want to look at Romans chapter 11 as it talks about uh, the the Gentile people being grafted into this tribe of Israel and being brought into this great promise, being brought into this great covenant and the beauty of that that Paul teaches in that great text in in Romans chapter 11. But I want to look just in closing in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6 to 11 where Paul is teaching about this promise to this church In Ephesus and he's saying you too are part of this promise whether you are Jew or Gentile male or female slave or free he says you too are part of this promise as you follow and walk in obedience to Jesus Christ and Paul says it this way in Ephesians 3 verses 6 to 11 he says and this is God's plan both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. And though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasure available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, has kept from the beginning. And God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What an amazing promise. What an amazing truth. What an incredible invitation for us to understand and to see that we are also part of this big story. That we have been invited in to walk out this blessing and to be a blessing to others. And this truth that We have been blessed by God in order to bless others with the good news of Jesus Christ as he is the fulfillment of God's promise. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the truth of your story, the power of your story, the implications of your story, and even how it comes into modern times because it's this true story that is being written across history. And, Lord, there are so many components that we don't understand and we don't even fully realize at all how to put them all together. And yet I thank you for the truth that we see, the truth that we know, and this promise that is being fulfilled. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have fulfilled this promise of the cross, that you have made reconciliation possible between us and a living God, that as we bend our knee to you, Lord, that you redeem us, you save us, you rescue us, and you restore us in a right relationship. We praise you and we thank you for that truth. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live as people of promise, of your promise. May you give us that kind of faith to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.